on this computer. Recording dot dot dot. Okay. So hello and welcome. This is Jonah Steinberg. I'm a Jewish chaplain at Harvard and the director of Harvard Hillel and so glad to welcome you to this conversation about the themes week by week of our Torah readings. And I'm really glad not to be alone in this, especially in this time, but to be making this truly a conversation with two wonderful people I'll introduce in a moment. But first, just to say, as to our Torah reading, that this week we start at the very beginning, arguably a very good place to start, right at the top, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, or Bereshit, with the ancient creation story bequeathed to us through the generations. So what is on the reading table this week is really a nexus of wonderment and narrative and the human part in the story, the parts we find ourselves in and the parts we author. Here to think about all of this together with me are Adam Cohen, Adam is professor of chemistry and chemical biology and of physics and Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator here at Harvard. Adam holds PhD degrees, plural, from Cambridge in the UK in theoretical physics and from Stanford in experimental biophysics. And he's received an, an NIH New Innovator Award and Presidential Early Career Award for scientists and engineers from President Obama and many other accolades. And I thought anew of Adam's work most recently when reading a paper on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein through an eco-critical lens written by Tobias Ben, who is also here. Tobias is a sophomore in Harvard College, learning from afar this semester, speaking of the hybrid. And in his paper, Tobias raises questions of scientific curiosity, technological innovation, and the natural world. He thinks about the challenges of defining and distinguishing between the natural and biological on the one hand and the technological on the other, and whether the blending of those points in a promising or a terrifying direction, or perhaps both. Now, I've assured Adam in advance that I will not describe, much less demonize him as Harvard's Victor Frankenstein. Uh, not least because rather than stitching together dead body parts and shocking them to animation with electricity, Adam and his lab wonderfully weave together elements of living organisms, inducing them to reveal visibly their own intrinsic electric potentials and capabilities. Specifically, for example, Adam and his lab some time ago now took a protein from a single-celled organism that lives in the Dead Sea between Israel and Jordan, a protein that captures light, solar energy, and turns it into electrical impulse. And Adam and his team wove that protein into the genetic makeup of brain cells and induced the protein to work in reverse, if I understand correctly, to generate light in the presence of electricity so that we can now watch, and I mean you actually can watch, if you go to the website of Adam's lab, neuronal impulses, action potentials, propagating visibly in living networks of cells. Neuroscientists have long spoken metaphorically about parts of the brain lighting up. In Adam's lab, they really do. And as if that weren't enough, Adam's team took another protein, a light sensitive one from an alga in a pond in Northern England and incorporated it into those self same neurons so that the cells could be induced with different light to fire. 
So actually, my first question for Adam is, what are you working on now? Well, um, there are many things, uh, uh, many mysteries of the brain still, which we're uh, trying to develop tools to um, uh, address. In the context of looking at the electrical activity in the brain, um, over the last 10 years of working on this, we've gotten to the point where we can look at maybe 10 or 20 neurons at a time in the brain of a mouse. And on the one hand, that's amazing. We can see 20 neurons at, the, at once. On the other hand, there are 75 million neurons in the brain of a mouse. And, and so we're only still you know, looking through a tiny little straw at the whole opera. And so we're working on um, trying to develop optical systems and um, uh, better molecular tools and software, sort of the whole system for trying to image uh, activity in larger ensembles of neurons in the brain. So that's one area where we're working. Another new area where we're starting a project is to try to understand uh, or have tools for better visualizing the structures of memories. So when you form a memory, there's some physical change in your brain, which is the uh, instantiation, is the essence of that memory, which you can then uh, recall later. But nobody has any idea what the three-dimensional embodiment of a memory is. What is the encoding which takes our experiences from the outside world and turns them into molecular um, and cellular changes in the brain? And so we're trying to develop molecular tools to tag the changes in the brain that occur during memory formation. So, so we call this our photographic memory project because we want to actually take photographs of memories in the brain. Now this hasn't worked yet. This is still uh, very much uh, uh, in the kitchen, uh, but uh, we're trying a few different things, which I'm um, cautiously optimistic about. Wonderful, uh, and thank you. And for Tobias, my initial question, speaking of memories, is that I first met you in a context of music, uh, listening it, to it together at a concert where we met in Harvard's Memorial Church. And I think of you most in situations of literature and art and philosophy and I suppose what I want to ask is what has drawn you from more in those realms to think about questions of nature and the intersection of the natural and the synthetic or the technical? Wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, I think that everything really is connected. And philosophy, I think people have been philosophizing for as long as people have been thinking. And when we start going back throughout history, nature begins to play a much larger role than I think it does today in our daily lives. I'm currently in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I went running in a park this morning, but the park I went running in is certainly not the experience of nature that millions and billions of people have had for, throughout most of history and as uh, the human species has had throughout evolution. So I think going into literature, what I find so fascinating is a renewed emphasis uh, that society is facing because of climate change, uh, because of a lot of new um, and exciting uh, eco-critical lenses being applied to literature uh, and art in general, that allows us to say, well, what are the different reactions that humans have when they have different levels of nature in their lives? And one of the reasons why I really like going to the Torah and Genesis to look at this is because, well, that's what it's about. It's about creation. It's about God creating nature, separating and uh, separating 
his creations and showing humanity what is the potential. And um, we can look at this from a variety of angles. We can look at it as mythology. We can look at it as literal truth, but all of it circles around the idea of creation and nature. So that's just one angle that I like to take a look at. So speaking of exactly that, one of the sources and traditions I have in mind for this week at the start of our Torah is the very first Midrash, the very first rabbinic reading encoded in a great compilation put together around the fourth century of the common era called Bereshit Rabbah, sort of Genesis writ large. And the opening notion there is a statement, the Holy Blessed One looked into the Torah and created the world. This is sort of our Jewish version of what we find in the Gospel of John's. In the beginning was the, was the word. The idea that the world we inhabit and even the reality that we are is in some sense a divine transcription of primordial pre-existing wisdom into physical actuality and flesh. Now, one of the ways this is challenged amid our present scientific times and knowledge is that after Darwin, we understand that evolution is not teleological. Evolution isn't end-driven. Um, so for instance, let us make a human being is not something that natural selection says a priori. Species in the natural world arise not according to a plan, but in a very contingent way through the intersection of previous mutations and present conditions. But here you are, Adam, in the lab saying, let us make such and such. Uh, and actually, a neuron that literally lights up is perhaps superior, at least in that way, to one that doesn't. And so I wonder how you think of that ancient creation story, if you think of it, with its deliberate transcription of idea into actuality, and if you think of your work as in any way being like it. Well, that's an interesting question. You know, the, the, toward the end of that um, passage, of course, um, God creates people uh, in God's image. And one aspect of that uh, sort of mirror image, if you like, um, creation is that people themselves can create. And, um, you know, and we've been doing this, of course, you know, uh, as long as there have been people around from, from the uh, Stone Age paintings, uh, you know, to building uh, giant skyscrapers and buildings. And now to um, uh, using advanced technologies in the biological realm. Um, but it's all part of the same process. And in some ways, you might think of the current um, progress in biotechnology and our ability to copy and paste from one organism to another organism and, and to begin to think about how to design attributes of organisms as sort of fulfilling that, that mandate of, um, uh, you know, continuing the effort of, uh, of creation. Now, of course, um, you can do that well and you can do that poorly, and that's where, you know, the, the, the judgment comes in. But the, the creative aspect of it, I think, is in some ways um, already called out in that, in that first passage. I should add, it's uh, somewhat um, noteworthy that we're talking about this today. I don't know if either of you saw the Nobel Prize in Chemistry uh, announcement this morning uh, to Jennifer Doudna and Manuel Charpentier um, for the invention of CRISPR, which is a uh, gene editing technology, which is one of a long line of tools in this, uh, uh, of this 
short, but which has really accelerated this process of people, you know, cutting and pasting uh, life. So thinking about the well or the poorly of it and the way in which we you know, employ our awesome and terrible capability to, to author the ongoing story. Tobias, on a, on a note of, of real life outside of books, I recall hearing about a, a weekend of yours recently with two museum visits in it in your life as a, as a Harvard student in the great metropolis. And I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what your life is like these days. You mentioned running in the park this morning and not to be too romantic about it, uh, speaking of Mary Shelley, but as you walk around New York City, do you ever find yourself thinking about Dr. Frankenstein and his monster and, and how? Yeah, so I think that where we are in society now, uh, we're in a much better position than people have been before in terms of epidemics. So I'm very grateful that it's safe enough for me to leave my house and go for a run, go to a museum, spend time with other people with masks on. Uh, and these are the kind of experiences that I think one sees the benefit of technology. But I also find myself not immediately connecting it to Frankenstein, but um, this is a central idea that the technology we allow also makes natural disasters, whatever they be, hurricanes, uh, tornadoes, tsunamis, or epidemics, all the more dangerous. So because I'm able to go on a subway, it also means that the bacteria or the virus that we are picking up is also able to transmit with people through confined metal tubes in the ground. So while the creation of life in Frankenstein from dead matter is incredible, it also has that same negative edge. And these are two different particulars that go to a larger idea, again, of just you get the good and you get the bad. And that is a, in many ways a universal message that we're finding applicable uh, today, definitely with technology. Another person I've been thinking about in relation to the opening of our Torah is um, Mary Oxman, who works at the uh, Media Lab at MIT. She's an American-Israeli designer and uh, professor, where, and she leads what's called the Mediated Matter Project at MIT. And I've heard Mary speak about mothering nature, by which she means a kind of role reversal in which humankind, having been in a sense parented by the natural world, now really is in the role of and must think of ourselves in the role of becoming not just the caretakers, but the, the progenitors of the onward story of the natural world. And I, I recall Adam hearing you say, we could never invent these functions on our own. So I want to ask about your sense of wonderment as a scientist and simply as a human being in the world. To me, your work seems propelled by, by a sense of wonder. And perhaps if you think of communicating a story of wonderment to a generation of students, perhaps to your children, I suppose my question is whether you think there's a spiritual dimension to that in your view. Um, it, it seems to me that way, but I wonder what you think. Yeah. Well, um, you know, as uh, Tobias said, you know, you go outside and you look at the natural world, and, and it's beautiful, right? Uh, that, that's that's an emotional response, and and it's true. You know, it it, it can evoke this sense of wonder uh, in us. And I think one of the um, things that I've found is that with you know a, anybody can appreciate sort of the beauty of 
a mountain range or, or a sunset or, or a lake. Um, but with the more you study the natural world, that sense of beauty can be enhanced because you can look at the mountains and you can think about their geological history and you can think about all the different kinds of rocks there and how the mountains got formed. Or if you go to the Dead Sea, you know, it's beautiful. You can see uh, uh, the water and, and, the, and the beach and you know, the mountains there. But then the more you study about it, you learn that it's not really dead. There are microorganisms there. And these microorganisms have these intricate mechanisms for um, harvesting sunlight and for converting that into their own um, metabolism. And so, I mean, I think that there can be this sort of popular conception that scientific study somehow sterilizes things or ma makes it dull and dry. But I find it's quite the opposite that, and I think some people might find the same probably with Thora's study, that the more you go into it, the more layers you uh, uh, sort of unpeel and, and, and it never stops. You know, of course, the, the deeper you go, the more you um, see and the more you appreciate that we really just don't understand very much. And so despite, you know, all of this great um, optimism about the power of the technologies we're developing, it still remains that we can't really create these kinds of life on our own. And we're still, uh, you know, peering through a straw at the giant, uh, um, yeah, at a giant opera. Speaking of vantage point, here's here's a perhaps an unfair question, but do you ever wonder about some extension of something you create in your lab somewhere down the line, wondering if it could, if it can, what am I? <laughs> uh, to be honest, I don't lose any sleep over that. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's so hard to to make anything actually work that, um, you know, I, I think a lot of concerns about these tools sort of taking on a life of their own. I mean, maybe at some point in the distant future, but I think we'll have plenty of warning signs as we approach that. And uh, we're, we're still a very long way. I mean, you know, one sort of literally microscopic um, illustration of how far we are is I've been part of some studies and so, some um, explorations of concerns about bioterror and ab about, you know, human released um, pathogens and, and the havoc they might uh, cause. And yet here we see, you know, currently with this pandemic, you know, it, it was a completely natural occurrence, you know, from bats to um, through some other species to, to people. And, and it still remains that the things in the natural world are far more complicated than, than what we can uh, create, uh, both for good and evil. Mm -hmm. So I, I think about capital N nature. And in your paper, Tobias, that I was reading, nature is very often capitalized as something we may revere uh, or perhaps also situate somehow outside ourselves. And I, I think of the um, I think of the ways in which our times are challenging us to think of ourselves as more integrated as parts of the natural world than perhaps in early modern times we did but also, as you mentioned, are perhaps distancing us in, uh, in ways at the self-same time from what we think of when we say nature, as though it were someplace out there, a, a nature reserve somewhere. Um, and so I wonder, Tobias, from the, from the vantage point of uh, your thinking about this in the time of Mary Shelley and now thinking about it today, um, do you see us heading in a in a promising direction or in a, or in a direction of 
I suppose maybe the question is in the direction of closeness or a direction of alienation. Oops, and you're on mute, I think, Tobias. No, I... There you are. Um, I think that the direction we are heading in and in many ways in now uh, is one of certain, certainly promise, but it's also terrifying and wonderful. It's simultaneously terrifying and wonderful um, because the idea of capital and nature, it creates a separation, as you said, between humans and nature. But when we start thinking about humans as part of nature, as completely part of nature, that there is in fact no separation, when we get rid of that boundary to begin with, then the terrifying idea is that everything we do is natural. Nothing is unnatural. And that, it, it Oh no. Really challenges. Can you start again with, and that really challenges? Because yeah. it grows up a little bit. Um, let's see. Oh, yes. Uh, so going back to the idea, the disintegration between the boundary between the natural and the unnatural. When we start to see ourselves as completely natural, that there's nothing unnatural about the machines we make, the buildings we construct, the electronics we use, then we start to wonder, well, what is wrong? If this is all natural, if we are all part of the ecological cycle, uh, then how can anything we do be wrong? And that is something that is terrifying in my mind because we become part of nature. We do not condemn, condemn nature when we see a hyena eating a smaller animal because that is part of nature. But we feel that it is unnatural for humans to be rude to each other, to be mean to each other. But that, if we see ourselves as part of nature, then how can that be unnatural? How can that be wrong? And that is something that in my mind is a terrifying idea, but it also opens our mind to thinking about new ways to create human society, just as ants produce anthills and termites to, uh, produce termite mountains. Uh, we're doing the same thing. And if we start thinking of ourselves in that context, what, what other wonderful things can we make? That brings us beautifully back around to the question of Torah, uh, in a sense, because, because Torah, of course, starts with starts as it does this week with our narration of the world that we find around us. And from that proceeds through story of community into law. Torah is teaching. So what is the teaching that we teach ourselves to go with this world as we explore and understand it? Um, I won't go into that now because uh, this brings us to the end, but also to the beginning. Um, I'm really so glad to share in this opening of the book together with the two of you um, to be prompted to think in new ways, which are also ages old ways of fascination and of involvement and the the questions and sometimes the horrors and sometimes the amazing opportunities that our conscious involvement in all of this affords. So Tobias and Adam, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for opening the book together. Thanks for the daring in doing that and in, in beginning this series of conversations of Torah together. Thank you, Jonah, for uh, catalyzing this and for uh, running the discussion. Thank you very much. And thank you, Tobias. Nice to see you both. Nice to see you both.